If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, as we continue in our series, In the Beginning. The title of this message is, When God Stepped In to Judge Our Sin. And uh, congratulations to the high schoolers. We trust you'll make it out to their, uh, their little places along the perimeter there in the fellowship hall to congratulate them. And I would say to them a very simple motto as you uh, make your trek into the next uh, uh, portion of your lives, college, or just trying to figure out whether you should be in college or, or whatever it is. There's a, there was a, a mentor of mine, a former mentor, his name was Dallas Godly, godly man. He had a motto that he lived in his life. His motto was, love God, hate sin, and always be sweet. That was it. That, he lived by that. Love God, hate sin, and always be sweet. Now, when you go to the world, uh, the pre-flood world of Noah, just the opposite is going on. They hate God. They love sin, and they're evil continuously. Now, so far this year in Chicago, Illinois, there's been one murder on average every single day. Every day, at least one murder. But if you think that's as bad as it's ever been, you need to think again. Because there was a time, according to Scripture, when The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. The word thoughts is is, is the word for heart. Uh, it, It reminds us of the total depravity of man. Here's how the psalmist put it. Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They, are, they do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside, the psalmist says. Together they become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. Jeremiah put it like this. The heart is so sinful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Of course, God goes on to say, I know the heart. I try the reins. I know your hearts, God says. But our hearts are bad. Theologians, again, call this the total depravity of man. It was never so bad as it was in the days preceding the flood. Now, before you go on thinking, well, I'm glad those days are over, You might want to consider the words of Jesus who said this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so, wow, just before Jesus comes back, it's going to be so wicked, it's going to be so rampant, it's going to be so replete, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be just scary to live in this world. Look at the next line from Jesus. For as in those days before the flood they were eating... And drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now please, if you're with me on this, when I read things like eating, and drinking, and marrying, and 
and you know, being given in marriage, that sounds pretty normal. There's a lot of normality going on just before Jesus returns. That doesn't make it any less wicked. Wickedness is continuing. The Bible says that evil men and imposters, imposters will, will wax worse and worse, and we're in the midst of it right now. But there's also going to be a sense of just going on, because apparently it was just, just sort of life was just going on until all hell broke loose in this world when God destroyed the entire world with the flood. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, in the days to come. Let's give uh, this prelude to destruction a context, though, shall we? In Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look at the, a, a sin-filled condition, a, a sorrowful creator, and a satisfying conclusion. The only conclusion that could come out of it. First, a sin-filled condition. Now let's look at what would bring about the destruction of the entire earth by way of a flood. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of fame or renown. Well, there's your context. There's, there's your backdrop, okay? Four verses filled uh, with fill in the blanks. I'll explain that in a moment. But just the reading of it, there are words and conditions that fill us with wonder and strike us with terror. You know, what the heck is going on here? Don't you wonder that when you read this? Whatever we conclude, we can all agree it's bad. It's really bad, right? It's so bad that God is going to conclude that the only thing that will satisfy his wrath is to destroy the whole earth. By the way, here's what I meant by fill in the blanks. Uh, four verses filled with full. Let, let's put the verses back up again. You'll see what I'm talking about here. Let's look at it again. When man, look up the screen. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Who are these sons of God? Dissertations, uh, papers, books have been written on this. Who are these guys? Saw the daughters of men, they're attractive, they took as their wives any they chose, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Why the reference to flesh? Is, just, is this just a, a reference to humanity in general, or is, he, is, there, is, is there a purposeful contrast between flesh and his spirit that he just mentions a little bit earlier? His day shall be 120 years. What, is that 120 years by way of life being shortened, because if you were here last week or the last several weeks, we know that previous to the flood, men were living eight, seven, eight, nine hundred plus years before they died. So is he saying they're only going to live to be 120? Do you know any 120-year-olds? Well, I mean, in other words, is it the, the age uh, longevity is going to shrink, or is he talking about it's going to be 120 years of building this ark before God destroys. We're not told, it's just, there's a little 
interpretation going on. That's what I mean by we're trying to fill in, interpret. There's a lot of interpretive stuff in here, is there not? He says, the Nephilim. Who are these guys? We're on the earth in those days and afterward when the sons of God, there they are again, came into the daughters of men. We, that's, that's understood enough. They're having sexual relations with them and they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, men of fame or men of renown. What was going on here? Now, whatever we decide, these are the conditions that provided the provocation to cause God to say, Enough! That's it. Who are these sons of God? And who they are has been subject of debate since dirt. The easy solution is that the sons of God is just a reference to the, the godly line of Seth that we saw last week. Remember, because after Cain, you know, there's this, everything was debauched, and suddenly, you know, God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, and that, thus men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Remember that? So there is an interpretation that says this is just the godly line of Seth gone bad. Uh, they're not godly anymore. They're, they're marrying ungodly women, and it's tainting the family, the spiritual family tree, so to speak. And by the way, as bad as that would be, I, I disagree with that interpretation, but that is, that is a legitimate interpretation. Now, any way you look at it, when a believer marries an unbeliever, that's bad. In any generation, that begins to corrupt the family tree, the, the extension of the gospel. And I would say to every one of you, that you that are teenagers, collegians, post college and you're single don't you dare consider if you name the name of jesus marrying an unbeliever it just messes everything up on the other hand people have been doing this since time immortal right it just seems to me hardly that which would constitute god annihilating the earth so the other major view which I'm inclined toward is that something much more sinister is going on here. Something sin-filled, something diabolical, something more satanic, and yes, mysterious. We are talking about fallen angels here. The sons of God refers to fallen angels. By the way, Whenever this phrase occurs in the Old Testament, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, Job chapter 38, when God created everything, the sons of God were rejoicing. It's always referring to angelic beings. So I take this, the position that in this case, these are angelic, fallen angelic beings that have, are cohabiting either directly or indirectly with the daughters of men. Possibly a satanic attempt to create, are you ready for this? An unredeemable race of men. And if you think that that's just crazy far-fetched, if you think that's just like out there, check out 2 Peter and Jude. Here's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to these words. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, 
with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then skip down from the context of verse 10, kind of cinch up the context. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Sound kind of creepy to you? How about over in Jude, the last little letter before the book of Revelation where we're told in verse 6, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as, or the, the, the Greek says, in the same way as, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Whatever these angels that Peter and Jude referred to were guilty of, it was enough for God to lock them up into the inner recesses of hell itself Never to be loosed again. And aren't you glad? But don't miss the fact that Peter particularly directly connects these angels and they're leaving the, their natural abode for that which was unnatural to the time of Noah. Now add to that the phrase the sons of God in Scripture has, you know, again, has, has a reference to angels, but it's also the oldest view. This view I'm giving you is the oldest view known to exposition. Indeed, the ancient rabbis held this view. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham uh, poses this. Those who believe that the Creator could unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find the story intrinsically beyond belief. In addition, the Nephilim, these are the giants, some of your Bibles refer to here, the, the, the word Nephilim means uh, fallen ones, were thought to be, in ancient time, they were thought to be the, the, the result of a union between heaven and earth. And the only other time this term Nephilim is ever used is in Numbers 13, when the, when the, remember the 12 spies were sent out? Remember that? They go into the land, they're spying that land out before the Israelites go in there and check it. And they see these giants, possible relatives of, of Goliath. They're just, in fact, these guys are so huge, they are the Nephilim. And he refers to the only other time this, this word is ever used. And they're so freaked out by these giants, instead of describing the giants, they describe themselves. Remember that? We're like, what? grasshoppers compared to these guys. So, producing men. What do they produce? Verse, the end of the verse uh, 4 says they produce these men of renown, famous, superhuman beings of some kind. And whatever race was coming out of this, it was bad enough to cause God to supernaturally act and say, enough. In my mind, to take the view that this was just disobedient Sethites, just Flat out waters down the text. I'm not pretending to understand exactly what was going on, how this could happen. I said it was either directly or indirectly cohabiting with humans. If it was indirectly, it could have been a demon possession thing. Whatever was coming out of this was so horrific that God said, enough, I've got to wipe it all out. 
So you have a sin-filled condition. Now you have a sorrowful creator because verse 5 and 6 you have. We read verse 5 earlier, but verse 6 gives you the result. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I want, to just, I want us to just settle in on that for a little bit. God regretted. It grieved his heart. God's sorrow was over the willingness of men to indulge in the wickedness of the spirit world. This is this total depravity. God regretted, God grieved. Somebody asked me just the other day, when you worship and when you pray, when you have your time with God and you're praying to God, what do you envision when you think of God? And I told them, I don't envision anything. God is not to be envisioned. He's to be worshipped. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I said, we must see him, quote unquote, as one to love, to honor, to praise, to talk to, to ask of, and to enjoy. Listen, God, and we're talking about his feelings here. God is not, he's no more robotic than you or me. He is personality. He is divine personality. He is perfect personality. Yet he is real, real intellect, real will, will, real emotional personality. He therefore has all the feelings that you have and all the feelings that I have. With one humongous exception, not being tainted with sin. And what that means, he, can feel, he feels joy, he feels sorrow, he feels hatred, he feels jealousy, he feels, yes, he feels regret. But the huge difference is that when God feels these things, here's the deal. When God regrets, watch this, it is Perfect regret. Perfect regret. It is therefore not clouded with second guessing like you and I have. It's not clouded with wrong-headed thinking like you and me. It's not clouded with a lack of knowledge or a lack of wisdom. Or uh, like our worship leader, we were, I was talking to our staff the other day and, and sharing this with them. And our worship leader, goes, uh, Paul, goes, yeah, God never says, whoops. God wouldn't do that because he is the omniscient God, right? So is he able to regret? Yes, but not as you and I regret. Here's what, how Samuel put it. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That's the same word as is used in Genesis 6. So is the Bible contradicting itself because it says God regretted? No, here's the point. God is not like man that he should have regret like men. Therefore, now listen to this, therefore, God can regret and does regret. He has those feelings. Not because he's messed up, but because we've messed up. And while you're at it, listen carefully to this. You only hurt over the choices of those you love. Isn't that true? I'll say that again. You only hurt 
over the choices of people you love. Is that true or not true? There are millions, there are billions of people in this world that are making really bad choices right now. Awful choices, satanic choices, but you're not grieving over it. Why? Because you don't know them. But if it's your spouse, if it's your kid, if it's your friend, if it's somebody you love, then you grieve. That tells you a little bit about God. God loves us. He has this intimate knowledge of you and me. And when he grieves, he really grieves. It's a genuine grief. In fact, uh, in verse 6, it says it it grieved him to his heart. You see that? That, that? The Hebrew expression means to be bitterly indignant. To be bitterly indignant. And it reflects the most intense kind of emotion one can feel when they observe the bad actions in somebody else's life. In fact, this very same Hebrew expression occurs in Genesis chapter 34 when, the, when, the, when Jacob's sons discover their sister Dinah has been raped. They're that incensed. This is how God feels about this. So make no mistake, when we sin, we grieve God. That's why Paul said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed under the day of redemption. Why would, God, why would Paul say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why. Because you can grieve the Holy Spirit. God is real. He is a personal being. He has feelings. And yes, even regrets. So we, listen, so don't fall into a fatalistic ditch that sees everything as merely playing itself out. Listen carefully to this next sentence I'm going to give you. What must happen will happen, but not without directly affecting the very heart of God. What must happen will happen but not without directly affecting the very heart of God. You want to know why it should break your heart when somebody rejects God? Because it breaks his heart. We have a sorrowful creator here. And finally, a satisfying conclusion. The only conclusion that God could conclude is to wipe it out. And so he says in verse 7, look at it, he says, "I, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'll blot it out. The word means to erase. It was used of scraping or washing off a plate. And when you wash off a plate, you usually, ironically, use water. And I'll remind you, we're about to come upon a promise from God at the end of this thing where he's going to promise to never destroy the earth again by way of a flood, right? But I want to remind you, he doesn't promise to never destroy the earth again. He will. The only question before us this morning is, will you be counted among its victims? That's the question. So, God stepped in to judge our sin. 
In this case, by pouring out his holy wrath on a sin-filled world until the water absorbed every rebellious sinner there was. A few thousand years later, he'd do it again. God stepped in to judge our sin. This time, not by pouring out his wrath upon men, but by pouring his wrath upon his very own son, Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus absorbed every sin in those who would come to him for deliverance. And aren't you glad? And while it grieved the Lord to destroy the world, watch this, it pleased him to crush his son on our behalf. It grieved him to destroy the world, pleased him to crush his son. So as Noah and his family would eventually step into that ark and find deliverance from certain judgment, If you will step into Jesus Christ, you too will find him to be the ark of your salvation. There's only one door in the ark. There's only one doorway to heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. You come to him and you'll be saved. You come to the ark of all arks, Jesus Christ, and you will find salvation and you will find deliverance from judgment and you will find eternal life. As Noah, verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. It was given to him in the eyes of the Lord. You will too if you come to the ark of all arks, Jesus Christ. The ultimate time that God stepped in to judge our sin was at the cross. He's going to come again. And this world will be destroyed, not by water, but by his wrath, nevertheless. The only question is, will you be found among its victims? Or will you come to the one who became a victim for you? A willing victim, I might add. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word to see this uh, mysterious passage that is so filled with horror. It's so ominous. And we have concluded, Lord, that something demonic was occurring there. And, And yet, Lord, we confess openly before you that we don't know because there's a lot of gaps here and you know the truth. And maybe it was just the ungodly Sethites. I don't believe that, Lord, but... We do know this, whatever was going on was bad enough for you to destroy the entire world, to pour out your wrath. We've learned today, Lord, that you are a God who feels, who experienced regret and sorrow. And we have been reminded that you have all of these things that we have, but in all of your perfections without sin. And we confess we can't understand how a person can regret and yet not regret in the way that we regret, but we see it and we believe it. 
because we know that you're not a man. You are God, and we worship you as such. And we thank you, Lord, for the satisfying conclusion of the cross, whereby you took all of our sin, you poured your wrath upon your Son, absorbed it all, so that those of us who would place our faith in him could experience deliverance and salvation. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room right now who, who uh, would look at Christianity as a, as, and Jesus as something nice, but not something absolutely necessary. May they see today their own sin and run to the ark, run to Jesus, run to the door of their salvation and be saved. And may the rest of us who have done so already found rest and joy and deliverance in the ark of all arks lift up the name of Jesus more so as a result of being together today in Jesus' name.